We'll hear argument this morning in case 21-1333, Gonzalez versus Google. Mr. Schnapper. Um, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Section 230C1 distinguishes between claims that seek to hold an internet company liable for content created by someone else and claims based on the company's own conduct. What if I told you the modern internet owes its existence to Jordan Belfort, the guy immortalizes the Wolf of Wall Street in Martin Scorsese's 2013 film? You might say that sounds far-fetched, and okay, maybe I'm exaggerating for the sake of a good story. But there's more truth to it than you might think. Welcome to a special crossover episode of The Term, and our long-form sister podcast, Law360 Explorers. I'm Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover, and I'll be your host this week as we unspool the story of how Section 230, a law passed with little fanfare nearly 30 years ago, became this all-powerful shield, one that helped companies like Facebook and Google become the global behemoths they are today. Three decades later, the Supreme Court's now at the center of this fierce legal struggle to pierce the armor of Section 230, and some say it's a case that could break the internet. Now, to understand where we are today, we got to go way back, long before the days, you know, you could conjure a fake image of the Pope in a Balenciaga puffy jacket, or when chatbots could pass the bar exam, even way before Mark Zuckerberg stepped foot on Harvard's campus. Welcome to 1994. Grunge is nearly dead, and the internet is very much alive. It's no longer the realm of the tech inclined, and actually millions of Americans are using their dial-up internet connections to flock to chat rooms and message boards. You could talk about anything from sports cars to dating, and people are really excited about it. It spans the globe like a superhighway. It is called internet. The net to longtime users. Internet is a whole group of networks. The net is made up of some 12,000 individual computer networks. Internet began back in 1969. It was a tool of the Pentagon. But nowadays, just about anyone with a computer and a modem can join in, usually for a nominal fee. When Carol Phillips wants to know what's going on in her Now, among all of these online forums, one of them is something called Money Talk. And it's a forum that would have been lost to time and cyberspace were it not for a butterfly effect of events that actually changed the course of online history. Money Talk was hosted by one of the big three internet companies at the time. It was called Prodigy Services. You had Prodigy and its competitors, America Online and CompuServe. But whereas America Online and CompuServe took kind of a light hand approach, if any approach to moderating content, Prodigy actually held itself out as a family-friendly service, one that actively monitored its platform to take down objectionable content. Prodigy, you've got to get this thing. I don't know how I did without it. And I'm doing this, I'm doing this stocks. I never played stocks in my life. You want to know about your bank? Boom, boom, bingo. Bingo. I'm making money. You're making money. With this finger, John. This finger. Yes, it saves me a lot of time. I mean, you can even get the scores before the paper does. While the game's in progress. What's that? Baseball scores? We got them. Prodigy is the online service that connects your computer to news, shopping, sports, and now an encyclopedia. All for only $12.95 per month. All right. Prodigy. 
great service. You gotta get this thing. Prodigy. Stores everywhere. In October of 1994, a Prodigy user posts a breathless warning on Money Talk about a Long Island investment firm that's got a growing reputation for its less than scrupulous business practices. So writing in all caps, this user says that the firm's president was a, quote, soon to be proven criminal and says that the firm is a, quote, cult of brokers who either lie for a living or they get fired. Not exactly glowing reviews. Well, the name of the firm is Stratton. Oakmont. Now, if it sounds familiar, that's because that's the firm at the center of the 2013 movie Wolf of Wall Street by Martin Scorsese, which stars Leo DiCaprio as Jordan Belfort, who is the ruthless penny stockbroker who found Stratton Oakmont. The film also has Jonah Hill. He plays a guy named Donnie Azoff, Belfort's right-hand man. And importantly, Azoff is a character based on real-life Stratton president Danny Porish. Now, at this point in 94, when this post appears on Money Talk, Jordan Belford has already been banned from the securities industry by regulators, and the firm is now being run by its president, Danny Porish. Gentlemen, welcome to Stratton Oakmont. In 2023, it's not controversial to say that Stratton Oakmont is a bunch of liars and crooks. But at the time, you have to remember that the firm is still years away from being actually closed down under an avalanche of criminal charges and that they were putting out an image as being above board at least. So Danny Porish files a lawsuit saying that such statements are libelous and in a move that's going to have implications far beyond what anyone actually imagined at the time, he and his lawyer named Prodigy itself as the defendant in the case and sought $200 million in damages. His decision to actually sue Prodigy itself is a very ambitious one. That's because never before had an online platform been found liable for content posted by one of its users. In fact, just a few years earlier, Prodigy's rival CompuServe had actually successfully defended against a lawsuit that was filed over a defamatory newsletter. But you obviously can't get what you don't ask for, and this move pays off in spades. So in an unprecedented ruling, the New York State Court judge that was hearing the case granted partial summary judgment to Porish. They said, yes, you're right. We will treat Prodigy as the publisher of these allegedly libelous posts. And he bases the ruling on the fact that Prodigy, unlike CompuServe, held itself out as a family-friendly service with moderated content. It took down objectionable materials. Now, why is that important? Well, in his view, This hands-off approach embraced by CompuServe and AOL, that made these companies more like bookstores for purposes of defamation law. Now, bookstores traditionally can't be held liable for the content in the books that they sell. But because Prodigy was playing this active role in striking objectionable content, the judge said that it was acting more like, say, a newspaper, which of course can be found liable for defamatory content that appears in a newspaper. People immediately realized that the implications of this were huge. That meant that any internet platform with moderation policies could be held liable for any of the content that appears on the sites, no matter if it was generated by a third-party user or not. It was the first ruling of its kind, and it shook the industry to its core. One of the most well-known First Amendment lawyers in the country at the time was a guy named Martin Garbus. And it was around this point that Prodigy reached out to him to take over the company's defense in the case. I'm fairly sure that if I had been there earlier, there might have been a different decision. With Garbus now at the helm, 
Prodigy charts this new aggressive strategy. They're actually going to assert the truth as a defense. That means they're going to get access to discovery. They're going to get documents to be able to show that, no, these, this post on Money Talk was not libelous because it was in fact true. This soon leads to settlement negotiations, and eventually Stratton agrees to drop its claims against the company in exchange for this half-hearted apology that doesn't actually admit to any wrongdoing. But there's a problem for Prodigy, and that is that this earlier decision that Prodigy can be held liable as a publisher is still floating around in the ether. It's still on the books, and it poses an existential threat for the company's business in the sense that they can be now held liable for any of the content that appears on their site. So Garbus meets with the judge in his chambers one day, and he tries to get him to reconsider his ruling. Well, I wanted him to hunt on the case. It was absolutely clear that he was not going to come up with a First Amendment permission defense, which I would have hoped to see, uh, to insulate Prodigy. He was not going to do that. I just tried him to get pulled back on his holding that Prodigy, because it did something, had an obligation to do it in a certain particular way, which is opposite from the Kubi decision. The judge ultimately shoots down Garbus's request to reconsider his earlier decision. And he writes an opinion in December of 1995 with a particularly telling line. He says, quote, this is a developing area of the law in which it appears that the law has thus far not kept pace with the technology so that there is a real need for some precedent. So there it is. The country has this first precedent, holding an internet company liable for user speech. It's a case that made plenty of headlines, including one that captures the attention of an upstart Republican congressman from California. Nineteen ninety-five was a good year for Chris Cox. He had been in Congress representing California's Orange County District for the last seven years, and Republicans had finally taken back the majority. For him, that meant plum committee assignments and even elevation to House leadership. But Cox was still frustrated, especially with all the entrenched partisanship of the time and all the gridlock that it produced. So he wanted to do something about it. So he sought out his friend in Congress a Democratic House member named Ron Wyden from Oregon. The opportunity to work with Ron Wyden on a handful of things, and he and I uh, became friendly. Uh, one day we were having lunch, uh, talking about the hyper-partisanship in Washington, D.C. in 1995. This was, uh, I have to laugh now because it's so much worse now, but uh, but it, it's always been a partisan business, of course, and, and it seemed especially so in those years. And we asked ourselves, you know, what might be done about that, why it was happening, why all the Republicans were sitting at separate tables from the Democrats, even in the lunchroom. These two lawmakers knew they had to focus on a new area, something other than the plain old red meat that stoked the usual partisan divisions between Democrats and Republicans since time immemorial. And when Cox came across news of this ruling in the Stratton-Oakmont case, he knew he had found the issue that he was to be working on. It seemed crazy to him reading this decision that Prodigy was on the hook for millions simply because it was a family-friendly service that moderated its content. 
Whereas on the other hand, you had companies like CompuServe that could escape liability by wiping its hands of these moderation policies. That's obviously going to dissuade any future internet companies from trying to create a safe online platform. And that's what he wanted, a safe online environment. And so uh, it was a big deal that, that the service got penalized to that extent of for hosting user speech. It was very clear what was going to happen uh, and thinking of it from the user's standpoint, which is what Ron and I were, uh, we realized that our opportunity to post would evaporate uh, if the hosting services faced open-ended liability for every single post. Cox and Wyden introduced their bill, and they call it the Internet Freedom and Family Empowerment Act, and try to go to work pushing it through the House. But they're not the only ones on Capitol Hill that are working on cleaning up the Internet. So across the halls of Congress in the Senate, there's a Nebraska senator by the name of Jim Exxon who has a radically different and radically more aggressive approach to try and clean up the internet. And that is this new bill that would effectively punish and criminalize any user or company that knowingly exposes minors to, quote, obscene or indecent content. And it's going to make them on the hook for steep fines and even potential jail time. So where Cox and Wyden are using this kind of scalpel so as to not disincentivize companies from moderation, Exxon is trying to use a sledgehammer into trying to get these companies to comply by taking down this content. I don't think Senator Exxon had a grip on just how big the World Wide Web was at the time. Uh, it was millions and millions of people using it. Now, of course, it's billions. And so uh, our effort was named the Internet Freedom and Family Empowerment Act. It was freestanding legislation, and we moved it forward in the House as an explicit alternative to what the Senate was doing because we thought the Senate approach would not work. Both bills are on a collision course when they pass through the House and Senate. And in the end, through the congressional conference process, they are incorporated into final legislation, and it's signed into law by President Bill Clinton in 1996. The law is called the Communications Decency Act, which ironically is the name of Exxon's bill. And I say it's ironic because a year later, Exxon's provisions would be ultimately struck down as unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, leaving in place only Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. The statute consists of 26 words. They read, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. In his definitive book, The 26 Words That Created the Internet, author Jeff Kossif said that this law, quote, fostered the innovation and freedom that has allowed an industry to grow and thrive for more than two decades. The law didn't transform the internet industry overnight. In fact, it wasn't even immediately obvious to some of these companies that Congress had done anything significant here. In his book, Kossif writes that the language flew right under the noses of the political media at the time. It generated almost no coverage, or as he puts it, quote, it was as though Section 230 was invisible. But one of the first people to realize the implications of this law in its broad language was an attorney by the name of Patrick Carone. He worked in media law for a big DC firm that's now today known as Wilmer Hale. 
and he became the first lawyer in the country to successfully use Section 230 to defend against a lawsuit that was seeking to hold an internet platform liable for third-party content. The law was pretty fresh, and a few months after it was passed, Carome was approached by one of the big three, America Online, about potentially representing the company in a lawsuit from the victim of an internet hoax. The plaintiff was a guy named Ken Zarin, and his tale was kind of unfortunate. Basically, shortly after the deadly Oklahoma City bombing, there appeared a bunch of advertisements on AOL message boards advertising merchandise glorifying this deadly terrorist attack. And under them, it listed the name and phone number of this guy, Ken Zarin, only he had actually nothing to do with it. So of course, he starts receiving a bunch of death threats, and eventually he sues AOL for negligence and claims that the company didn't do enough to take these posts down. And this is when Carone gets involved, when the case transfers to federal court in Alexandria, Virginia, and he's asked by AOL to potentially pitch the company on representing it. It went to several firms in D.C., mine included, uh, to ask for proposals for how they would defend the case. And it was sort of a written beauty contest where they they asked for a uh, some sort of written presentation as to how you would def- how you would defend the case and what you would charge uh, f- for the defense of the case. Now, looking at it today, you might think that it would be obvious that any lawyer pitching AOL on representing it is going to use this heaven-sent Section 230 with its broad language immunizing companies for third-party content as the central kind of strategy to defend it in this case. But not even the sophisticated DC lawyers that were pitching AOL were fully aware of its potential. And Carome thought differently, and he hinged his pitch on this new immunity provided by the law over the defamatory post that had put Zarin in such a bad spot. Well, it, it was it was sufficiently not obvious that at least one of the other three firms that AOL asked in this on-paper beauty contest to uh, to make a pitch, at least one of the other three firms, I ended up seeing their pitch, and they didn't even mention Section 230 as a possible ground for defending the case. So that gives you one sense of how in the air Section 230 was at that point. The statute was only a few months old at that point. It was not terribly well understood what it meant. So Carome makes his pitch, and the rest, as they say, is history. He successfully uses the law as a defense against Zarin's claims and gets a very important victory for AOL a little more than a year after it was signed by President Clinton into law. Now, the decision is ultimately upheld by the Fourth Circuit in a ruling written by a judge by the name of J. Harvey Wilkinson III. And this decision becomes the first circuit court opinion in the country interpreting Section 230. Just focus on just the narrow facts of the Zarin case. He basically said you know, an online service provider cannot be held liable for harmful content that is disseminated through the service. And he wrote it, he didn't, he wrote it in a fairly broad terms. The fact that Judge Wilkinson was who he was, highly respected, caused the decision. And because the decision, I think, was so well written and, and reasoned, it caused the decision to be a really highly noticed and highly relied upon precedent by the hundreds of judges and courts that have faced the question, not the first time, but you know, with the help of the, that precedent. Judge Wilkinson's decision in the Zarin case, it's not just an early bellwether for Section 230. It's a line in the sand. And crucially, it didn't matter that Zarin had repeatedly brought the post to AOL's attention. 
according to Judge Wilkinson's ruling, Congress spoke clearly and broadly with Section 230. AOL was not liable. Over the next two decades, the internet changes virtually every facet of life, and millions of users become billions, and the old three of Prodigy, CompuServe, and AOL give way to the social media giants of the 2000s, and Facebook, and Twitter, and Google. And along the way, courts are dutifully applying Section 230 to give this broad protection for these new fledgling companies, to kind of shield them through their adolescence through a predictably safe legal environment. This allows them to go from kind of awkward teenagers into the leviathans they are today. And as Kosef writes in his book, quote, imagine an internet where armies of volunteers could not crowd edit Wikipedia entries, where Americans could not share their views about politics on Facebook, where unhappy consumers could not leave one-star reviews on Amazon. That would be the internet without section 230. By the late 2000s, Section 230 was no longer invisible, and this is when the pushback starts mounting. Some of the earliest critics of the law are state law enforcement officials who feel like courts are improperly using it as a shield for companies that serve as hotbeds for minor sex trafficking. But the criticism doesn't end there, and a number of factors from the rise of Donald Trump to the pandemic only raise the heat on these social media companies and in turn the broad protections that they enjoy under Section 230. So with millions of children now using the platforms every day, advocates want to see accountability for things like deep fakes or broader issues like screen addiction within the nation's youth. Here's Angela Campbell, a professor at Georgetown Law who chairs an organization called Fair Play, focusing on child development in an online world. By claiming that everything they do is simply part of the publishing process, social media companies can escape liability from harms that they cause to young children. And because they aren't held responsible, they have no incentive to make their products safer for the millions of kids and teens that use them on a daily basis. The criticism reaches a fever pitch around the time of the 2020 election, and conservatives are accusing platforms like Twitter of censoring conservative viewpoints. At the same time that big tech exercises massive power, it also enjoys massive corporate welfare through the effect of Section 230, a special immunity from liability that nobody else gets. Congress has given big tech, in effect, a subsidy while they become some of the wealthiest corporations on the face of the planet. And it's around this time that the issue captures the attention of the Supreme Court. A month before the election, Justice Clarence Thomas writes a concurrence signaling his willingness to revisit the broad immunity that courts have been giving these internet companies for the previous 24 years. Blood's in the water and the lawyers are ready to attack. It was a pleasant day on February 21st, when I was walking up the Supreme Court to go to oral arguments in Gonzalez v. Google. More than two years had gone by since Justice Thomas first wrote about Section 230, and the court was now finally going to hold a hearing about the scope of this law and potentially cut back on the legal super shield that the tech industry had been enjoying for decades. But there really weren't that many people outside the court as I was heading in for oral arguments, and 
I found that strange considering the potentially massive implications of the case. I mean, there would be a huge crowd a week later when the court heard oral arguments in Biden's student debt relief case. It seemed to me that Section 230, kind of like when it was in Congress, seemed to be flying under the radar once again. It was around this time when a cab pulled up in front of the court building and a group of people, kind of somber looking faces, got out. And I recognized two of them as the petitioners in the case, Beatriz Gonzalez and Jose Hernandez, the mother and stepfather of Nohemi Gonzalez. They were seeking to hold Google accountable for the death of Nohemi, who was 23 years old when she was killed in an ISIS terrorist attack while sitting at a bistro in Paris in 2015. In their lawsuit, they say that These social media companies, Google, Twitter, and Facebook, they knowingly allowed this terrorist organization to operate and take advantage of the platform's infrastructure in order to recruit and radicalize new members. And this, despite the widespread publicity of the fact that ISIS was using these platforms by government officials and media outlets, they were basically saying in their lawsuit that everybody knew. But like so many lawsuits filed against social media companies, the Gonzalez family's suit was thrown out in light of Section 230. But they continued to fight it all the way to the Supreme Court. And they're asking the justices to decide, is Google protected by Section 230 when its YouTube algorithms feed users ISIS videos based on their search histories? They say that this goes far beyond the original scope of the law, which was just meant to originally protect them from liability for the content itself posted by third parties. But they say when these sites use these recommendation-based algorithms, they are acting way beyond the scope of any liability protections provided by Section 230. And if the court finds that these algorithms are beyond the scope, then these companies could potentially face a wave of litigation over the content that they feed to users. Now, on the other hand, if the court finds that these algorithms too are protected by Section 230, well, then plaintiffs are going to have little recourse to do anything about viral deepfakes or libelous smears that get plastered across these sites. In the end, it doesn't seem like the Supreme Court's going to make any major changes to Section 230 in its ruling in the Gonzalez v. Google case. I sat there through hours of oral arguments that day, and I heard justice after justice expressing really the same caution that so many federal judges before them have had, when, especially when it comes to imposing this kind of liability on internet companies. I mean, after all, the internet industry has really largely flourished in the absence of this liability. You heard Chief Justice John Roberts quite literally at oral arguments worrying about breaking the internet if he were to decide with the plaintiffs in the case. And of course, breaking the internet not in the way that Kim Kardashian did. I mean, the the, the amici suggest that if we wait for Congress to make that choice, the internet will will be sunk. Um, And so maybe that's not as persuasive a outcome as it might seem in other cases. Brett Kavanaugh, too, was similarly concerned about what he called economic dislocation from potentially crashing the digital economy. And it wasn't just the court's conservative justices either who were worried about the potential implications of a ruling in favor of the Gonzalez family. Here's Justice Elena Kagan weighing in on whether the Supreme Court should carve out these algorithms, especially now that their use is so widespread and baked into so many of these different platforms. This was a pre-algorithm statute, and you know everybody is trying their best to figure out how this statute applies 
the statute, which was a pre-algorithm statute, applies in a post-algorithm world. But I think what um, was lying underneath Justice Thomas's question was a suggestion that algorithms are endemic to the internet, that every time anybody looks at anything on the internet, there is an algorithm involved, whether it's a Google search engine or whether it's this uh, YouTube uh, site or, or, uh, or a Twitter um, account or countless other things, that everything involves ways of organizing and prioritizing material. Um, and, and that would essentially mean that you know, 2.30, uh, I guess what I'm asking is, does, you, does, does your position send us down the road such that 2.30 really can't mean anything at all? In the end, it seems like the Gonzalez family is going to have to keep searching for accountability for the tragic death, Nohemi at the hands of ISIS terrorists. It's really hard to imagine that in this case, the legal fortress that is Section 230 that stood for decades now is going to come down in the Gonzalez v. Google case. But I think if it does nothing else, the court's ruling may still set some guidance. Guidance on the breadth of the law and guidance that could prove very important as the courts grapple with Section 230 in the years to come as technologies continue to develop. To that end, the Biden administration wants the Supreme Court to set some outer bounds on what Section 230 does and does not protect. Deputy Solicitor General Malcolm Stewart floated a hypothetical to the justices at oral arguments about potential algorithms that, in fact, would go beyond the scope of the law and potentially could open up some of these sites to legal liability. The, the concern we have in mind are things like, imagine a hypothetical a job matching service uh, like Indeed, where job applicants can post their qualifications and potential employers can post their own listings and the website will match them up. And suppose it came to light that the job, the job search mechanism was routing the high paying, more professional jobs disproportionately to the white applicants and the lower paying jobs to the black applicants, even when the qualifications were the same. At a general level, you could describe that as choices about which content would go to which users. But when we saw that kind of stark impropriety in the criteria that the platform was, was using, I think we would say, there has to be, assuming it violates applicable law, 230C1 really shouldn't be protecting that. And sure, this case deals with recommendation-based algorithms, you know, the ones used in search engines, for instance. But what about other forms of artificial intelligence? Justice Neil Gorsuch in particular seemed concerned about the types of generative AI systems that you're seeing in headlines every day. He seemed to be suggesting that those actually would fall outside the scope of Section 230. Because in a post-algorithm world, Artificial intelligence can generate some forms of content, even according to neutral rules. So, I mean, uh, 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 artificial intelligence generates poetry. It generates polemics today. That, that would be content that goes beyond picking, choosing, analyzing, or digesting content. And that is not protected. As I was walking out of the courtroom that day, I couldn't help but see the similarities between the Gonzalez case and the Stratton-Oakmont case that faced this New York State judge three decades earlier. In both cases, you have a situation where the technology has far outpaced the relevant law. In the Stratton-Oakmont case, you had a judge trying to apply the common law of defamation 
to the burgeoning internet industry. And in Gonzalez v. Google, the Supreme Court is facing a predicament of trying to fit this square peg in a round hole. It's essentially trying to apply a 90s-era statute to an internet that looks vastly different than it did at the time that Section 230 was passed. And it's a decision that could shape the future course of the internet. Will it be the right one? I hope you enjoyed listening to this special crossover episode of The Term in Law 360 Explorers. I'd like to give a massive shout out to producers Kelly Marcano, Amber McKinney, and Stephen Trader for making this episode possible. This episode also wouldn't have been possible without the massive help of the Law 360 newsroom and the amazing reporting work that our team does at law360.com. Please check it out. If you like this episode, please leave a review and check out some of our other podcasts.